20% of the U.S., according to a recent survey done, and 21% of Utahns say they experience depression half of the days of any given week or nearly every day. So if that percentage were applied through our assembly here this morning, that would mean one in five of you would have answered that question the same way. Maybe some of you did. I, I was struck by this. It was a, a little news article that appeared on one of our local news channels just this week. And I thought, one in five battling depression, discouragement. In the past two weeks, 60% of Utahns reported feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge. I probably could answer, depending on what day you ask me, in the affirmative. There are reasons to be nervous and anxious and on edge, aren't there? And in this same report, women are slightly more likely to report depression and substantially more likely to report uh, anxiety than men. I don't know that that's because their anxiety rates are actually higher. They just tend to share it a little more openly, right? Uh, I suspect that the percentage is probably about the same in men as it is in women, but you know, we were taught from early on, especially if you were born here in this nation, like American men, we're tough. And we don't show our weakness, right? But a lot of us are dealing with it. A lot of us are dealing with those kinds of thoughts. And one of the things that God does as, as our Father is to set before us truth that not only informs those very points of anxiety or fear or depression or discouragement, but it, it's intended to shape our thinking. My sincere hope would be that if we actually surveyed this assembly, the percentage would be much lower because we really are people of an eternal hope. And the series that comes to a close today, this little four-part series on the Bride of Christ, is designed to take us to some key passages where God says repeatedly, let me tell you who you are in relationship to Jesus Christ, and let me tell you more about him and what he is presently doing to, to erase all the effects of sin in your life and to prepare you for eternity. And today we're going to come to some specific texts that tell us about eternity, the future that is already being prepared. It's already secure. And I'm telling you, beloved, that if we will set our hearts upon God's truth, believe it first of all, and then meditate upon it, it will begin to expel all of those other thoughts and realities that try to crowd out this glorious truth that, that would quench your joy and diminish your confidence from day to day. God is serious about these things. He doesn't want you to live hopelessly. He actually wants you as his child to be full of hope. And remember again, the biblical concept of hope is not just this like, well, you know, like, like we're all hoping it will rain or snow a little more, right? Break this drought once and for all. But who knows? Like we have no power or control over those things. That's not Christian hope where we're just like, well, I hope Jesus returns. I hope we get to heaven. I hope I won't always, you know, battle my own sin. No, it's a confident expectation that the good he has promised is presently being ministered to us or is presently on its way. And so we're gonna look at some of those very scriptures 
today. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John? 1 John. It's one of the three letters that the Apostle John wrote to the early church. They're some of the shortest letters in the New Testament. It's almost at the back of your Bible, and we'll come to the end of 1 John 3, and then read a few verses there, and then move on to chapter 3. 1 John 2, uh, you follow along as I begin reading. And you can see the verses printed on the screen as well. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray again. Great God and Father, thank you for this word. It is not only an accurate description of realities uh, that are true at this moment, but it is life-giving truth for us. And so I pray that through the Word and through the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, every person here and those who are viewing through live stream would submit heart and soul and mind to this authoritative Word and experience the transformational touch of the Spirit of the living God. We are all in need of this word of truth. We all need to have our wrong notions corrected. We need to have careless living adjusted. We need to be brought into a place of full submission and surrender. And I pray to this end because your word promises that The pure in spirit are are the truly blessed ones, for they will see God. And there is no greater need for us on this day than to see you as you are. To see Christ in his unveiled glory. To be confident of your love for us, displayed on the cross, verified through the resurrection, promised at his next coming. We've sung of it already on this day. We're going to read more of it and how I pray, great God and King, that you would make these truths live in our souls with such power that they would expel every cause of depression or anxiety or worry or fear. And let none here today who come under the sweet power of this sovereign word feel that nervousness or even feel on edge, but rather let all believe and rejoice and be full of the hope and expectation 
that your word gives us, that you, Father, give us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I want you to, or as we come to the conclusion of this little brief series on the bride of Christ, I want you to be thinking in terms of the expectation. I want you to think in terms of of two categories to organize this little portion of 1 John today. And the first is, as you can see on the screen, our present confidence. There are reasons to be confident right now. And then there is also a future confidence, but that feeds right back into our present confidence. And so as we were beginning to read through this, there's a relationship that's being described that gives us this present confidence. And so I'm going to categorize that in three really simple ways. And the first is this, the relationship that we as children of God have with him is one of a deep love. Look at the little expression in verse 28, and now little children. That's actually a term of endearment, and it does seem to indicate the care and nurture that an adult has for uh, children who are dependent. Do you know where John learned to use this term? From Jesus. If you go back to the Gospel of John in chapter 13, it is Jesus himself whose words are recorded in verse 33 where he says to the disciples who are gathered with him at that time, little children, that is my dear ones, My dear little children, ones who I know are dependent upon me, ones who I know are inadequately supplied in and of themselves to be what they ought to be, to do what they ought to do, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. You can imagine how that stirred their hearts, but that's what gives way to those beautiful passages like John 14 and 15. We read some of them today, but even one we didn't read yet was this, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you, little children. So it's, it's a, a relationship of a deep love. Secondly, it's a relationship of personal love. We're commanded here through John, just as Jesus commanded us. Matt read this portion from John's gospel. Abide in him, that is, or remain or dwell in Christ. Where else are you going to park your soul these days? Are you going to park it in your political party? That's, that's sure to lead you to anxiety and depression, regardless of what party you're affiliated with. Are you going to try to attach your, your life and security to some other earthly relationship? We've all been around long enough to know that there's no other person on planet Earth that you can fully depend on every day every moment. No, Jesus invites us to come to him, abide in him, and and John reinforces that and says abide in him. Remain in Jesus, don't go anywhere else. Back in John 8, verse 31, Jesus said, abide in my word. Then in John 15, he says, abide in my love. And it's obvious that there's a clear connection between abiding in the reality of Christ's love and also abiding in his word. And we've touched on that a couple of times in in recent weeks, the importance of God's word. And again, I'm just gonna share with you for your encouragement and exhortation, if this book remains closed six out of seven days a week, but your news feeds remain wide open, your TV's going all the time, you're, you know, picking up the, you know, if, if anybody still does this anymore, a newspaper, remember those things? Well, that's, that's actually abiding in other media. 
other news sources. There's a place to be informed about what's going on in our world, but, but, but you don't create some sense of security or even a sense of love by letting that be the place where you abide. No, Jesus says, abide in my word, abide in my love. And this word continually tells us of God's love. It tells us of many other things. But it's a relationship of personal love. Number three, it's a relationship of secure love. Now look at what John writes next. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So two thoughts are contrasted here, confidence and shame. Let's look at shame first of all. What would cause someone to shrink in shame? Some of your English translations may either use other words like guilt or have a marginal note that refers to some kind of embarrassment or even remorse. And in the context, whatever would cause that kind of shame is the opposite of what abiding in Jesus does. I think it would include sin, but I think it would be more than that. I think John's point is rather than living life in any old way we please, just uh, as as my grandmother used to say, gallivanting around. Do you know what that means, gallivanting around? If you look at them in the dictionary, which I did two days ago just out of curiosity, globetrotting, and I thought, oh, that's really helpful too because we all know. <laughs> if you didn't know what gallivanting means, everybody knows what globetrotting means, right? No, it means just you're out and about, like doing your own thing, no, no care uh, about what's going back at home, who you're responsible to, and, and the Lord's saying, that's not what I've called you to. And if you live your life as if you are king, as if you are the sovereign Lord, just traveling through life around the world, wherever it takes you, when Jesus appears, you will feel great shame because you squandered your life. You did not serve him in submission. You were not in right relationship with him. So in contrast to that, though, he says that the point is that, that you may have confidence. Now again, similar to the biblical concept of of hope, um, there is a, a courage that is spoken of here, a boldness, a courage that says, I'm not afraid of the appearance of Christ. Well, what would give us confidence? I think there are two things that come in the next couple of verses. The first, look at verse 29 with me. You may be sure, he says, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's how God creates security and love. First of all, he says, I, I want you to look in the mirror, so to speak. What characterizes your life? And God's children reflect him. I think that's part of the point of verse 29. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Children look like or act like their parents, don't they? That can be good or bad. It's very sobering at some points. I see some of you glancing at each other and laughing. It can be painful at moments but you tend to look like who brought you into this world. And there's a spiritual reality in that as well, that when you really are God's child, you begin to act like him. And so I actually think part of what John is doing here is not just to, you know, to, to warn or caution those who aren't acting in the right way that they should. I actually think that's secondary to the, to the, the greater point that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born of him. Get this straight, practicing righteousness doesn't get you into the family of God, but practicing righteousness is evidence that you are part of the family. There are a lot of really well-meaning people 
on planet Earth today who think that if they could clean up their act and stop sinning as much and do better things and you know, contribute to the charitable causes in their local community, maybe even worship in a setting like this and, and, and practice a form of religion, that God, on the basis of that effort of righteousness, would accept them. But that's not the gospel of the Bible. The gospel is simply that God created us, we rebelled, plunged ourselves into darkness and depravity of every kind, and, and, and lived in need of a Savior, and God sent his Son as the Savior. He lived the life, first of all, we could never live, perfectly obedient. He died the death we deserve to die. That's why we put our faith in Jesus fully. We don't trust in our own works of righteousness for for forgiveness of sins or for acceptance with God or the gift of eternal life. No, we trust in Jesus alone. But when you do and you experience the new birth, you start acting like your father. You look like him. Now there's a second truth here and that's the first verse of chapter three where John says, see what kind of love the father has given to us? And that word see is a really strong word. Look at this. Pay attention to this. Get a hold of this great truth. Look at what kind of love the Father has given or bestowed upon us. You have a sense of like it really is a gift. Not just giving it out as he would, you know, some necessary supply for the day, but a generous gift. The New Living Translation captures some of this in a a little different wording than the ESV that I'm, I'm preaching from. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. Here's the second point. You look like your Father, and your Father gives you his name, that we should be named children of God. You know, I've always valued the Brooks name. I received it from my father. He received it from his father. It goes back many, many generations The family tree has some branches way back that are really interesting and curious to me, but this is the name. It means something to me because of the relationship I have with my father, and John's bringing us to a similar point to say, I want you to think about this. Look at this. Set your mind and heart on this. The God of the universe, the God who created all that is, who gave you life, who sustains this world, this solar system we're a part of, and the millions of other galaxies that exist. That God has entered into personal relationship with you, and not simply that he knows you, like a really powerful politician or administrator in the workplace or you know, a principal once upon a time might have knowledge of workers or students or, or those that are gathered, but he knows you in the most uh, familial terms. Father, child, and he gave you his name. One of the passages that strengthens our hearts, again from the Gospel of John, is the word of Jesus that that says to his disciples and to us that you're firmly planted in his hand and no one, no one can take them first from the father's hand or his hand. You're doubly secure in Jesus, but the father doesn't lose his kids. We had an episode years ago where uh, we had traveled to a location for a bit of a family reunion and um, the whole crew, I don't know, 30 of us maybe, it was... It was way too many, but um, 
we all were going to go out to eat, and we got to the restaurant. And you know how that happens when cousins, at least in our thing, you know, cousins, everybody's, you know, changing rides, and, and I'm, hey, Dad, I'm riding with Uncle so-and-so, and Mom, I'm going with them. And, and then you have, you know, people in your car that don't normally ride there. We get to the restaurant, and our oldest son was not there. And he was five. And we were 10 minutes from, you know, where we were staying. It's, it felt like 10 hours to drive back. And um, got back there, raced into the condo, and there he was seated on a couch. And um, I'll, I'm going to start crying telling you this story all these years later. And I hugged him, and he hugged me. And he said, Dad, I was upstairs. And he was playing, you know, PS2 probably in those days. He goes, I was playing the game and I suddenly realized the house was quiet. This is a five-year-old. And we were staying down on the South Carolina coast and in these inland waterways, Hilton Head, inland waterways. I mean, there, there really are alligators in those things and, you know, we're strangers in a place. And he goes, and I, I ran outside and I didn't see anybody there and I went across the parking lot and knocked on the door. And, you know, I'm hearing that. I'm like, ah. Oh. He goes, but those people were really nice and they said they hadn't seen you and that I should just go back and wait for you because you would come back for me. And yeah, well, I was right. <laughs> I'm like, man, you know, thank God for those wise neighbors that they weren't, you know, serial murderers. Because, you know, as a parent, that's where your mind is going on that drive home. And so we get back and poor Kristen's left at the restaurant. We didn't have a cell phone in those days. So she's waiting even longer than I had to wait. No father ever wants to lose a child. And your heavenly father won't lose you. It's a secure love. Now, let's talk about the future. Look at the next verse, verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you didn't believe John in verse one, he just reinforces it. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So let's talk a little bit about this future confidence. And God grows that confidence because he tells us, he actually tells us a lot, but he also leaves a lot unsaid. Now, let me pick up a few things from last week. When we were in Hebrews 11, one of the things that we noted there is that God himself, Hebrews eleven sixteen 16, tells us, prepares for his people a city. So I'm, I'm just gonna bring that back in. It's not in this text, but I wanna tie some things together. So we confidently expect to enter a prepared city. I should take some time, or Matt or Daniel and I, at, at some point in the future, just to, to preach a message or two on the heavenly city. It's spectacular. And by the way, it's enormous. Go look it up. I'll just tell you what you'll find. 1,400 miles cubed. I mean, and I did a little quick. I'll just, I'll just whet your appetite a little bit with this, um, that uh, in comparison to New York City, the largest city in our nation that boasts 302 square miles and a population of 8.4 million people, the tallest structure of which is One World Trade Center standing at 1,776 feet and 104 floors. So it's just a little over a third of a mile high. 
But you think about a city that's actually 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That's, that's 1.96 million square miles. I didn't, even, I didn't even take time to figure out how many New York cities could fit in that. And that's just level one. And let's say you assigned one level per mile going up. You have 1,400 levels going up. There's plenty of room in that space for all the Father's children. And the beautiful description in Revelation 21 and 22 just defies, really, our understanding. But in chapter 22 of Revelation, I want to read just one, a couple of verses and give you kind of one little thing to chew on about this city, to meditate on, chew on. That sounds a little crude. Meditate on this, though. It, the, the city, for all its spectacular beauty and the, the enormous size and scale of it, here's the real glory of it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a prepared city for you. The second thought, though, and I do want to return to 1 John, is that there is a real appearing. Christ's appearance. It's a coming appearance. It's not a maybe appearance. Maybe if he decides to have mercy on us one more time. No, he's already told us straight up, I will come for you. And do you know that there are over 20 specific references in the New Testament to the return of Christ? Now, John says here, what will be has not yet appeared. That it hasn't been fully revealed. But we know that. Here's something we can be and should be certain of. When he appears, just pause right there. When he appears, not if, it's when he appears. We sang songs earlier today that, that just fill my heart with more hope and expectation. I would that it would be today. I mean, I'd love to just have this sermon interrupted right now, probably for different reasons than some of you, but wouldn't it be great if Jesus came right now? 20 major references found in the New Testament alone from Matthew all the way through Revelation where his appearance is promised. Now, third and related to that, though, is our confident expectation. Our hope is also built on this promise of a perfect transformation. Look at this. We shall be like him. We're not going to be carbon copies of him. We're not going to be clones of him, but we will be like him. Do you remember Adam's response when he first saw Eve? The English is a little rough, but the Hebrew is beautiful poetry. I've told you this before, but I want to remind you of this once again. When Adam first saw Eve, the English is this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But he's, he's speaking poetry on the spot. And, and to just give you a little Cliff's Notes version, what he's really saying is, this is what I am. And God had said, it's not good for this man to be alone. And he wasn't just, com- just creating any old kind of companion, but God himself said, this will be the perfect complement to him. And so Eve was created in an infinite, in an expression of God's infinite wisdom and design to be the perfectly completing one to Adam. Adam sees her in that moment and his heart overflows. And he's like, this, this is what I am. And beloved, 
You need to carry all of that from Genesis 2 forward to these promises where the Lord himself as your eternal groom is preparing you for this great moment of presentation. And when he and his, and his apostles like John say, we will be like him, it's going to be that perfect correspondence. Not cloned, as I said. You're not going to become a God as he is, but it will be the perfect relationship, the expression of that infinite wisdom as your transformation is completed. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's kind of in the middle of your New Testament, so that'll go back a few pages from 1 John Now, in this particular passage, there are many things said. You should read the entire chapter. Maybe you can do that this afternoon or this evening uh, as the Spirit of God takes you back to a few things from this morning. But right in the middle of this, um, Paul begins to describe what we should expect at Christ's return and when the transformation of his people is underway. And in the middle of that particular portion, verse 41, he's describing uh, the, the, the variety of glories in the universe, and he's illustrating this. And I, th- I think it's curious to me that some have tried to use this passage to, to conclude that there are three levels of heaven, but that's not actually Paul's point. And I think if you read that, you'll see. He's not talking about three different levels of heaven that you or I might aspire to or hope to experience one day. He's actually just saying that there are different kinds of heavenly bodies. And now he goes on, uh, from that, in verse 42, to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. That, that's all he's saying here. You have one kind of body now, you're gonna have another kind of, of body and being in that day following the return of Christ and the resurrection. So presently our bodies are characterized. I'm just summarizing some things here that, that you can read in those verses for yourself. Um, but in verse 42, let me summarize it. Right now our bodies are characterized by what is perishable, He uses the word dishonor, then weakness, and natural. So those are four characteristics of your present condition and mine. But the resurrection body, in comparison to that, will be imperishable. You're not going to be subject to disease, death, weakness. I mean, just think about that for a while. You'll get really happy. Seriously. Because you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and like, oh, my word. Some of us. And the rest of you, it's coming. (laughs) A glorious body. Radiant from the inside out. Then he describes it as, whereas it was weak, it will be a body of power. Praise God. And finally, he says, it will be a spiritual body. Physical, yes, but of a whole different kind. Spiritual And then he goes on to say in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who's he talking about there? Well, that's Adam. He's the man of dust. And we've borne that image. We all know. We're walking around in that body of dust right now. But here it comes. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, who's the man of heaven? Capital M. It's Jesus. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You wouldn't want it to be so. If you took this body 
in its present condition, and I'm talking both physically and the spiritual condition of your existence and my existence right now, into heaven, you would feel really out of place. You know why? Because the imperfect you is suddenly in a perfect environment, and you'd be on your face, first of all, before God, like, I can't take it, I'm gonna die. Something's gotta change, and he knows that, and he's gonna do that. That's part of the plan, and that's part of the promise that we're seeing here. He goes on, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We shall be like him. Now, let's go back to 1 John. That's good news that we will be like him, but there's another, perhaps even more precious piece of news. And that is the next phrase, we shall see him as he is. You're in 1 John, a couple of pages over in the book of Revelation, chapter one. It's page 1028, if you're using one of our church Bibles. There's one little paragraph that describes Jesus as he is. John saw him. In verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine a day where your presence might be even a small reflection of that? You will be like him because you will see him as he is. For some of you, the light in your eyes dimmed long ago. There hasn't been fire or life for a long time. But if you are Christ, the day is coming where your eyes will glow as a beautiful reflection of the Christ whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Your voice, long weakened by age or weariness, perhaps even sin itself, will be freed and renewed so that you will sound both words and notes of praise that in their own right will also be like the sound of many waters. And your face the face that is furrowed with the cares of life and wrinkled by the worries of parenting and the disappointments and sorrows of repeated breakings of your heart will also be transformed in that day so that you too, as a beautiful reflection of your Lord, your King, your groom, will shine like the midday sun. To put it in Utah context, like the sun on a cloudless day when you go over guardsmen pass. You say, really? God says, yes. We will see him as he is. So what do we do with that? 
Well, John's not done, is he? So one more time, we go back to 1 John. And after giving us just a little glimpse of this hope, he follows that up with this really significant phrase for us, everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. So we have this confident expectation. We're presently secure in his love, and there's a future appearance that's going to change everything about us. And this appearance, though, that we anticipate has a present application or implication for us, and that is that we get busy purifying ourselves. Shared with you not long ago that one of our children is engaged to be married. There's a lot of talk right now, a lot of work going on to prepare for a wedding. And I know for a fact one of the things that my daughter is doing is getting herself ready. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians. That tells us that Jesus is actually the prime, he's the point man on that whole process of getting his, his church, the bride, ready for that great wedding day. But, but now it's like he turns our direction and says, I'm doing it, I will do it. We say, how do we respond to that? You, you start purifying yourself. You start getting ready. And that means you and I need to be looking at every part of our lives. You won't be able to do it, you know, in a, in a 60 second review. This is just day by day as the Holy Spirit brings things to your attention. You're in the Word, you're reading things like, huh, I haven't really thought about that. Or, or just almost out of the blue, you will feel the Spirit of God convict you about something where you're like, you know what, that doesn't really honor Jesus. That's part of the purifying process where you and I are looking at the things we meditate on, the things we say, the things that characterize our lives, entertainment choices, recreational ventures, uh, everything from what we think to how we spend our money. Is it a reflection of this great hope that I have? Jesus is pure. He is making us pure, but he also wants you and me to join him in it. So it's what brides do when they are getting ready for the wedding day. They get themselves in order from head to toe, from finances to, you know, living arrangements. I mean, there are all kinds of things. They're looking comprehensive at life saying, you know what, I'm going to get married. I got to get things in order. And, and Jesus is going to marry his church. And he's hard at work preparing a place for us loaded his word with promises to create this vision, and now he turns to you and says, you need to get busy purifying yourself too. I'm, I'm gonna do it ultimately, but you wanna join me in this? And you know, a, a true bride says, yes. Oh, the church has its days. We have our days where we kind of like blank out on the whole relationship with Jesus, and, and we're still, we've been in Romans, we're gonna get back to it, God willing, in the next few weeks. We're, we're battling our sin, and some days you just almost feel like, Jesus, let's just call this thing off. I'm not worth it, or like, I'm so disillusioned with you. We, we have those moments, but on the whole, we're moving that way. So what do you fill your leisure time with? Would Jesus be an avid fan of the entertainment choices that you make day in and day out? Would he laugh at the jokes that you find humorous? Would he make light of the broken sexuality of this generation? Would he promote the violence, the callous indifference to human need, 
the lax moral standards that pass in our generation for progressive development? Or would his heart break and would he weep over that and call not just those people, but call you and me to repent and to abide in him? One author I read this week wrote that we are not to judge our lives by other people's, but by Christ's who is the standard or goal. And I would, I would emphasize goal even more than standard in the context of our discussion here. Who is the goal toward which we are to move? He's it. He's it. He's committed to your purity. Are you? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So let it be today. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Oh, Father, thank you for the promises of your word. We, we believe you, but we really can't imagine what it will be like to be perfect people in a perfect city and to see the perfect Savior. But with all our hearts, we pray for it and long for it, and we commit ourselves to that kind of purifying work right now that your word makes clear for us. So while we long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets, to look upon the one who bled to save us and walk with him for all eternity, we have work to do right now. There's a, there's a holy, sacred task right now. Spirit of God, would you move through gospel hope? in this kind of purifying presence and power? If there's sin that we haven't even become aware of yet, ways that we are grieving you, quenching you, would you reveal those to us right now? And as you reveal that sin to us, would you strengthen us to turn away from it and turn to you, the living God? Give us faith to believe that in the end, we really will see that it was worth it when Jesus returns and wipes away our tears. We believe you that there will be a day when all will bow before him. We believe you that a day is coming when death will be no more. Give us heart eyes to see it and to live for it. Give us just a glimpse even now of standing face to face with the one who died and rose again. Holy Holy is the Lord. Now, Father, thank you for all that you have blessed us with. Thank you for the present realities that give us confidence and for the promises that are not yet come to pass, but surely will. We give you our thanks for it all and pray that you would sink these truths deep into our souls so that when we encounter those living right around us who battle depression and discouragement, anxiety and fear, we would be able to say, oh, let me tell you about a great Savior and a great day that approaches. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.